From a wide range of embroidery classes to talks and special events, Royal School of Needlework's International Summer School offers so much. Immerse yourself in the world of the RSN with its world-renowned tuition and treat yourself to this Festival of Stitch in July and August 2024. The Royal School of Needlework is offering four ways to get involved this year. You can join the International Summer School on-site at Hampton Court Palace and at the Royal School of Needlework Durham in the UK, as well as Lexington, Kentucky in the United States of America. There are also online classes available live so students can join in anywhere from around the world. There's a wonderful variety of techniques to explore for those who are starting out on their hand embroidery journey all the way through to advanced stitches. So whether you want to follow a kit-based design, explore your own creativity using your own materials in a more contemporary way, or focus on developing your personal design skills, there will be a class that appeals to you. The Royal School of Needlework International Summer School classes will provide experienced stitchers with an opportunity to engage in a longer or more advanced project while allowing those newer to the world of hand embroidery to try a shorter course to build and develop their skills. The full list of classes and more information about the Royal School of Needlework International Summer School is available at royal-needlework.org.uk with special offers for booking multiple classes and an early bird booking price available until the 29th of February 2024. Whether you're planning on attending in person, online, or a combination of the two, this is a fantastic opportunity to improve your stitching skills from one of the best schools in the world. Dr. Isabella Rossner is a Royal School of Needlework curator, an embroidery historian, and the host of the So What podcast. This is the second part of our interview, and uh, it's lovely for me to bring this to you on Christmas Day as well. Christmas if you're listening today if you're not listening today I hope you had a nice Christmas it's great to chat to Isabella she's a real firebrand and I think her perspective she's just a perfect voice for when we talk about historical needlework you know there's always a risk as we talk in the show of getting a bit plummy voiced about the subject whereas Isabella just isn't that she's got a genuine passion for this she loves finding out about the normal work of people because historical artifacts are often the realms of the rich you know people who've managed to hold on to them and in this section we have a long conversation about the concept of stitching just being for women but obviously we also then talk about her favorite book her favorite album and a mic drop of an interesting fact that no one knows about her so absolutely love talking with Isabella I'm looking forward to being on the So What podcast if you haven't heard that and if you've got any interest in needlework be sure to tune in she's got over 70 episodes there and they're a great resource if you want to know about the context that we're all in thanks for being part of the show if you have enjoyed the show if you can spare a moment to leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform that would be amazing I'll see you next time So here's a good one. So this is what what you're saying, you know, it's interesting because people relocate to a new country and they get told the stories of the culture around them, don't they? And I guess that's what you're saying, you know, the Quakers are brought up to learn a certain way and think a certain way and then they explore their own personal tensions within that and some of that comes out in the way they present their needlework and probably other ways that we just haven't survived time. And I'm always fascinated, obviously, about the stories we do get told about needlework. And one of the mm. things I thought it'd be cool to talk about is putting it, the, the short headline is, stitching is just for women, 
discuss. We've got all day. <laughs> oh, did you hear my deep, my deep exhale of breath? I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. I think mm. so much of what I want to do and what you are doing, obviously, is kind of counteracting this idea that it's just for women, that it was just for white women, that it was just for rich women, women of leisure, that it was. That's what so many articles about needlework, about any sort of um, kind of textile craft, is always titled something like "Not your grandma's cross stitch." A hundred percent, still, yeah. And that's fine because that is exactly what people think it is. But like, that's just not the history of embroidery. One of the things Mm. that's so cool about the history of embroidery is that, yeah, like it was for women of leisure, but it was also for everyone. It was people who were poor. It was people who weren't white. It was men. It was women. It was people of all races, places, genders, classes. It's a universal thing. I'm actually giving a talk for the BA students at the Royal School of Needlework on Wednesday about the history of men's embroidery and you are in it so oh. Oh. <laughs> thank you there's a high spot <laughs> Cheers. And, well i mean you fit very easily and well into this very very long lineage of men's stitching it's mm. it like i think people think oh men's stitching is something from you know world war one at, at the earliest instance of of men kind of um when they were trapped in prisoner of war camps and somehow found right, some and they were like, like oh, the no, 80 and do? managed to cobble something together right yeah. they were like oh i guess i need to teach myself how to cross stitch <laughs> yeah. in this pow camp or like you know world war one soldiers like being taught stitch as a rehabilitation yeah. thing <laughs> while their legs grew back right while they're while their legs grew back we love science <laughs> um <laughs> but yeah. it's always been men have always sought it out there are quite a few samplers made by boys in Mm. school there's this object that i love um i find it incredibly powerful and poignant and it's this hussif right this housewife the sewing roll covered in in embroidery and it's by this man named william burwise and he stitched the whole thing and it's very clear that he is a soldier who has lost a leg or a foot because he's saying like this is this sucks. I'm so lonely. Where are my friends? Um, mm. No one knows where the shoe pinches, you know, suggesting that he actually lost a, a foot or a leg. Um, you know, William Burwise, 1852. And it's like, that's like more than like, what, 170 years ago? Pretty recent mm. in the grand scheme of things, but way earlier than people I think ever tend to think men were stitching. They mm. were, they were in it from the very beginning. Professional embroidery historically has been men and women working together, mm-hmm. in, certainly in this country and in France as well. I mean, mm. in the 17th century, in my fave period, John Nellum was this embroiderer and embroidery designer who seems to have totally rocked the world of domestic stitching. He seems to have taken on from his dad, Roger Nellum, a needlework style that is one of the most, I think, widespread needlework styles of domestic stitching in the early modern world like the men yeah it's primarily women doing it but the men are right there and they're doing a Mm. lot of it as well and it's also it's not just rich people it's poor people people this is my whole thing stitching Mm -hmm. embroidery is universal because everybody once you reach the basic requirements of like being clothed and like having a roof over your head um embroidery is like the immediate next step after sewing i think because it's an incredibly easy and accessible way of adorning your body and your home. People want to be surrounded by things that bring them comfort and things that are beautiful. And embroidery requires a needle, thread, and piece of fabric. It's 
pretty mm. basic. So it's everybody all the time. And I, I think, think the evidence is, is there in the, the cultural significance of it, isn't it? You know, you think about, I don't know, Ukrainian needlework or, you know, I went to Guatemala years ago and you see it popping. You see it popping up everywhere, don't you? So it's clearly, like you say, it's like they I've put my clothes together. I've got a bit of thread left over. Might as well make them look pretty. That kind of thing, isn't it? It's just a natural evolution from that point forward. Um, I have this... Like whenever people ask me as well, I always say that the women as stitching thing is connected to the art versus craft debate. And I always say that men use the visual image of women stitching because you're sitting down doing it as being women are in the corner in their homes, being very domestic. We are men. We are mm. mighty. We will go and hunt beasts and make sculptures and big paintings and stuff. Now, obviously, that's bullshit. But that's my theory about how we got to where we are today. And I'm interested to get your take on that. Am I anywhere near correct? Yeah, I think it's uh, the men versus women needlework thing is as messy as the art versus craft debate, which mm. grinds my gear so hard. And I think it's a really, really silly thing. And I think Vasari in the Renaissance could not have expected kind of wreaking the havoc he did when he wrote, you know, he he was a renaissance author and he wrote this book about all these renaissance painters and kind of started at least that's what modern day art historians kind of interpret that he he started this idea of the the painter the sculptor as a, a lone a sole genius it was mm -hmm. the shift away from guilds and from anonymous work into people who had names and there were just it was it, you know it was like one guy that sort of thing the shift seems to have started with him and we're still um experiencing the ripples of that i think mm. that this idea of embroidery as women's work is partially grounded in history right because primarily at least in the last i don't know 400 years in england it has been primarily but not exclusively the work of women either in the home or in kind of like a business in the home, the school, or kind of in business. But I think it also comes from this idea of the art versus craft thing. People, the, the big arts were painting and, and sculpture mm. and architecture and uh, the, the guilds. People started looking down upon embroidery, I think more and more. And it, when it moved, oh my God, when it moved to the domestic sphere, when all of a sudden in, you know, kind of in the 16th century in Britain, people had the time and the money to be making embroidery for themselves in the home in a kind of, I hate the word amateur, so I'm not going to use it, but in a more domestic, less professional way. That just complicated things hugely because all of a sudden it's increasingly tied to things like um, education, piety, uh, submissiveness. It's quiet. You're, you know, mm -hmm. bent over, you're looking mm -hmm. down um, about how to be a good woman, how, because uh, it's, tied to education, right? You want to be a good wife. You want to be a good mother. You better know how to sew because you're going to be expected to have a life of sewing, mm. of needlework for your family. So it's tied into all of these kind of burgeoning ideas in the early modern world of, I don't know, gender roles. And I, I don't think that is very nuanced of me to say, I think I'm probably getting stuff no, wrong cool. because no, I'm no, not. No, 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 it's cool, it's cool. I'm not I think really... it's marketing as well. This sort mm, of yeah. I think it's marketing as well, because then what happens is somewhere down the line, you know, business gets involved. 
business makes men out of men, makes domestic women out of women, if you mm. like. And then, like, so I was, I was replying to a question actually from a an RSN student yesterday, um, and she was asking about sort of men embroidery, vulgarity, and those sorts of things. And I, I answered by talking about the Nintendo Entertainment System, which when it was first made, they didn't know what to do with it. They're like, it's a toy. And in the end, in order to drive sales, they had to decide it was a toy for boys. And so now we get like gun games, car games, misogynistic, you know, appearances of women as the culture. And that's over like 25, 30 years. But it's almost like a micro version of the same thing. If they'd have said Nintendo was for girls, we would have a very different gaming culture as a consequence. And and to me, that's like a a small thing where someone's Mm. gone, well, all right, this thing. And that's then spurred this whole thing on. Yeah. And it's almost like they've gone, okay, yeah, so women can stitch and men are magnificent and make all the big art that's really important and costs loads of money. But the stuff that you can do at home, that's what women do. Stay in your homes, ladies. Mm. We've got you covered, that sort of crap. That's such an interesting example. And it reminds me a lot of also, I think it was like before World War II, pink was a boy's color and blue was a mm-hmm. girl's color, yeah. I think. Yeah. Like, it's, yeah. yeah, a lot of it is marketing. And I think also mm. tied to this, is the fact that it's what we were talking about earlier. These are normal people. They're mm. these are not the people who have um, hundreds or thousands of pieces of of documentation about themselves or related to their lives in the archive. For the most part, these are people who, um, you know, a sampler is oftentimes the only or the best indication we have of who they were, um, and it means that we don't have a lot of writing, at least in the early, you know, in the 17th, 18th Mm. centuries, we don't have a huge amount of writing about how girls and women felt about this. Um, People ask me about that a lot. And we have writing around that. We have, um, you know, Celia Fines, who's writing, like she's, you know, late 17th century, early 18th century, writing about her travels and the spaces she enters into. And she's writing about seeing embroidery everywhere, but she's not necessarily writing about how she feels about it or, like the emotional implications, we have books and pamphlets and, you know, poems by men about women. And those things will say, oh, she loved stitching. She was so good at stitching or, oh, she hated stitching. She did not. That was not for her. And the kind of like implications of both of those things. Oh, she loved stitching and therefore she was a good pious mother or she hated stitching <laughs> yeah. and therefore she was a radical thinker Wanting. or whatever. Right. It's all very like simplistic and um, it gets really black and white and unnuanced, but I think that that adds to this complicated relationship between needlework and gender because it's tied to the people who are not, whose writings don't survive as much. So it, it ha- these objects have to speak by themselves. And mm. there are many different ways that these objects can be interpreted as, you know, what, what they're speaking about. Yeah. Tricky. It's funny because like like with the Nintendo thing, you can go back and we can see the start of it and we understand mm. it because it wasn't really that long ago. But you can't really see the start of this whole needlework debate. And I, it's just fascinating because it's like the the whole subject is so culturally bound. Like you say, millennia, you know, mm. there are what needles from 30,000 years ago and all that right. sort of stuff. You know, it's so... I remember, I might have said it before, but like I was at the Ashmolean once looking at some Chinese textiles from like 900 AD or whatever and suddenly going, oh my good God, <laughs> like, like right. oh my good God, I've just wandered into a socio-political discourse that's been going on for thousands of years. Just like, what? And also like, it's, 
easy, but all it, it's easy to forget that we're coming from this from like a very specific geographical viewpoint. We're coming from it mm. from, you know, an American who lives in Britain and a Brit, right? We are seeing what is happening in like a very specific part of the world. Whereas other cultures, that gender dynamic when it comes to embroidery is not the case. You know, like the house of people in Africa, that embroidery was typically done by men up until the seventies. Um, it, it, I think that's one of the joys, but complications of something that is so universal, like embroidery is it's really hard for me to remember that the experience that I have studying embroidery and the embroidery that I primarily look at is only one tiny snippet mm. of this much, much larger art form and different cultures and different, you know, the same society across space and time has had different views of it and it's ever changing. Like a good example, I think is in Britain, Mary Linwood, who is this needle painter in the late 18th, early 19th centuries. And she's very, very successful. And she, Heidi, Dr. Heidi Strobel uh, told me this. She's a professor at the University of North Texas. And she has a book that's about to come out about Mary Linwood. She told me when she was on my podcast that Mary Linwood was London's first female gallerist. And she had a gallery okay. of needlework. Her whole thing wow. was basically creating embroidered copies of paintings. And that was this interesting period in the history of British needlework where the art versus craft thing got really complicated because needle painting was basically making an effort to uh, to to mimic painting and people were invested in that. And it meant that we have a the first gallerist in London is not a painter. She's an embroiderer. But, you know, mm. that then shifts back, especially in the 19th century when Berlin Woolworth comes in. And then all of a sudden it's very domestic. It's very women in the home. And then it kind of starts shifting again with the arts and crafts movement and the gender dynamics of that. Like, this is the same society and over, yeah. over, the, over the course of like, I don't know, 250 years, but where embroidery fits in and how it's interpreted by the world and how it's valued shifts a lot. And she's doing needlework versions of paintings, which is a mm -hmm. bit like Andy Warhol. Yeah. And like, I think that there has been a long line of, of embroidery as painting. And there are, you know, there's this artist who I love, love, love today. Um, her name is Casey Zavalia, and mm -hmm. she's an American Shout embroiderer, out. right? She's yeah. So and good. like her portraits remind me a Ridiculous. lot of like a 21st century interpretation of Mary Linwood or Mary Morris Knowles or Mary Delaney, these women who in the late 18th century uh, were using stitch like a brush stroke and were mm. really appreciated for it. Like they were buds with Queen Charlotte, all of these, these three Marys, the trio of Marys, like they had Royal patrons mm. there. It's this moment of, of yeah, needle as paintbrush but it's just mm. unfortunate also that paintings are like everything is compared to paintings it mm. just in art history i think um it all comes back to paintings and how much is an embroidery like a painting yeah that's where it got its yeah. value from Yikes. now i know that we could definitely talk about this stuff for about another month but yes 
you did mention your podcast and it would be very remiss of me not to talk about your podcast because your podcast <gasps> has been going for quite a long time. Some would say it's the preeminent need to work podcast because mine's too new. So I don't get that title. I so do not feel like that is the truth at all. <laughs> and look at, did you see my face? No, I feel one of the things that's wild is that I don't know if you feel like this, but I am still convinced that nobody listens to it other than like my mom and a few of my friends. Um, so it's quite weird when people are like sending me emails or like, occasionally people will hear my voice in real life and be like oh are you and i'll be like you're a person in real life who listens to this it's very weird but yes it was a desperate lockdown project so it's been a mm. while tell everybody about it okay it's called so what sew um and it's about historical embroidery and those who stitched it and i started it in may of 2020 partially because i wanted I walked into my PhD not wanting to be an academic I wanted to work in museums I wanted to work with stuff and I was like oh no we are in a big old lockdown how am I going to kind of continue to engage with objects podcast and also I in the first few months of my PhD had had a lot of experiences where it was just like incredibly clear to me that fellow historians really did not care and like really, really did not think that the topic that I was investigating was um, interesting or valid. And I mm. was like, okay, well, I guess I need to prove to myself and also to the world that embroidery, historic embroidery is something to care about and is um, an academically rigorous and historically important thing. So it kind of came out of that. And now I had the three formal seasons and now it's more like as they happen, you're going to be on one soon, which is very <laughs> exciting. If uh, people want to dive into So What, 76 episodes, what are the bangers? Okay. So I think my faves, I've, nobody's ever asked this question before, and it's an extremely good one. So these are just ones off the top of my head. I don't think I have even any specific interview episodes that I are like my, that are my faves because I love every interview. I just... As you can tell, I just love a chat. It's the best. I just love to talk to people <laughs> who care about this thing. Um, so I like all the interview episodes. I think uh, one of my faves is this two-part episode about stitching in incarceration. So people who were stitching kind of in hospitals or prisons or workhouses. I think I called it stitching while imprisoned, possibly. Um, and I really liked that because it allowed me to think about and think deeply about uh, embroidery that's really different from a lot of the stuff that I look at. Because a lot of the stuff I look at is, yeah, fancy person embroidery. And this is stuff that was made by people in a variety of kind of adverse circumstances in places where they did not want to be. Um, you know, for most of these people, they were not going into places like hospitals or prisons or workhouses by choice. Um, but I like very much this idea of looking at people who are using stitch as solace um, mm. stitch as a way of gaining agency of voicing their opinions of dealing with their frustrations. Um, you know, I think that most people would call stitching while imprisoned, like pretty radical stitching. And I think I agree with that. And I'm interested in that, that history of radical stitch of stitching when um, a lot of your other options are gone um, mm. and I like that episode also because it means that I'm now all the time learning more, like learning of more examples of all of this in like when I produced that episode and I think it was like 2020 or 2021, I did not know about certain pieces, um, like this one 
piece that I just found out about by this Swedish woman named um, Meta Charlotta Falk, who was imprisoned for poisoning and murdering her husband and two children. Sorry, quite dark. Um, (laughs) Wow. Yeah. And in prison, she was not allowed to have a pen and paper. So she stitched an embroidered plea for mercy, um, which is incredibly dark. Um, Mm. But I had never known about this before. And kind of that episode allowed me, gave me a foundation in the history of prison embroidery, imprisonment embroidery. And I found that really helpful and hopefully one day i'll do a part three of that um i think also i will not be going i have never gone back and listened to my episodes because the idea of listening to myself (laughs) it's not happening can't do it feels really narcissistic doesn't it (laughs) yeah and also like i don't want to hear my own voice i don't want to i find it pretty cringe anyway so you will not catch me listening to them again so i actually have no idea how it sounds but i think the topic marvelous Oh, thank you. So nice of you. I think the topic of my first like full episode, the not little like teaser thing, but this episode called text and protest um, is a topic close to my heart. It's actually tied, I guess, to this prison embroidery thing. Um, And I talk about these samplers that are these really long documents. One is Elizabeth Parker's sampler, and she um, is in Britain in the early 19th century stitching about how much her life sucks, unfortunately, because it really does suck. Um, and then there's this other document that's embroidered made by what is likely an American girl in 1813 named Hannah Powell. And she is stitching, um, a petition that was published in the world, like in a variety of newspapers in the U S and the UK written by an Indian woman who, um, I'm going to just explain the whole story a little bit for some context. Her name was, thank you. Her name was Almasa Ali Khan and she was married to a man named Alma or Almas Ali Khan and he um, was a Maharaja in a region of India and Warren Hastings who at that time was basically the British governor of India wanted his land and he did not know how to get the land and so he imprisoned Almas or Alma and um, Almasa wrote this letter being like hey like you can take our land you can take all the jewels can you please give me back my husband and he was like oh yeah 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 yeah. sure 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 like come over um and get your husband from prison and she went over and got her husband from prison and he was dead he was had been executed already um which is very dark um but this girl i think she was probably a teenage girl in america stitched a sampler with this petition this basically this woman begging warren hastings for her husband's life she stitched it like 40 years after this happened and in a very different place and i find that a fascinating document because it, I think, speaks to this idea of a, a, a girl or her teacher or her family's kind of political ideas that this is really anti-British sentiment, this American girl is stitching. And what does it mean to be stitching, to be probably like 12 and stitching this extremely devastating document that happened, that was written in India about Britain? It gets very complicated. And then my other fave is... I think the second episode, again, it might be terrible. I'm not going to be listening to it. Um, (laughs) Let me know. Um, It's about frog pouches, 17th century frog pouches. And I, do you know about, oh, look at your face. Oh, I have so much explaining to do. (gasps) Oh my gosh. Okay. Okay. In the 17th century, there are at least six, there might be seven surviving, known surviving uh pouches these really like really quite small pouches um made out of you know their needlework their detached buttonhole primarily that look like frogs they're really small and the frog's mouth opens and each one is different they're clearly all 
early 17th century, mid 17th century. I tend to think kind of mid 17th century. Um, they've got bead eyes. There's there's one at the Ashmolean. There's one at the Museum of London, LACMA, Royal Collection Trust, University of Alberta, one that was sold at auction a few years ago and is in a private collection. But they're all different. And that one, I find them so charming because they are truly like this big. They are amazing but also it suggests that this was like a real thing that people it wasn't just one workshop multiple people different people were making these frog pouches and this is a trend it is it was a trend i like made a silly little tiktok about it once and i called it a trend and everybody was like i don't think you can call it a trend there's only six objects and i was like this is like (laughs) 350 years ago and everybody made a different example it kind of suggests that there was something larger that they're like that more were originally made so i think it's a trend too thank you um yeah, I, I think these objects are so, so, so charming and really interesting. And I have like a lot of quite insane theories about why frogs were depicted so often. Um, Go on. Yeah, you want, it, you want to hear? Okay. Yeah, I mean. Okay, there's a lot. So a few years ago, I wrote a really insane article um, with a friend about possibly the connections between frog pouches and plague amulets because it's a real plaguey time and toads toad amulets and things involving pulverized toad and frog were quite popular against plague. And I think that these plague, th- that these frog pouches are sweet bags. So they would have held things like fragrances um, and like sweet herbs um, because they're too small to have a coin. You can't really put your fingers in to grab a coin, but sweet okay. bags, sweet bags were all about, it was thought at the time that you could get sick through smell. So it was thought that illness spread miasmatically um miasma is basically like this idea of of bad air and it was thought that sweet bags you put them to your nose and you're like it's fine i don't need to smell the, the plague um it, it would like i may as well have a frog that's right like i might as well just stick this bad boy here for a hot second when i'm walking through a stinky street have a little sniff and 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 be well um but so it would tie, I think, this idea of sweet bags tied to plague because they're all kind of bound up in each other. But my real theories are, okay, one of them is that in 1605, a playwright named Ben Johnson wrote a mask. And a mask was basically like a play for the court. And it was called uh, The Mask of Queens, I think. And in it, there are tw- 12. There are like a series of witches and they're all talking about what witch behavior they're up to. And one of the witches is like, I made a purse out of a frog to put a daddy long leg spider in. Mm. Um, And I'm wondering if that inspired this production. Uh, I have a theory about Queen Elizabeth, her, one of her suitors, one she actually really liked, um, the Duke d'Anjou, Francois. He was called her frog. She called him her frog because he was like, significantly younger quite short hunchbacked and covered in pox like pox scars and i'm pretty sure that's why she called him her frog which sounds is, hot yeah a real diss to this guy calling him a frog but he seemed into it and he like i think gave her i don't know if it was because of that or because he gave her a frog earring but she was he was her frog and she was extremely devastated when he died and i'm also wondering if there's a tie to that and then my third i think maybe the most convincing theory in my head i sound really insane for all of these um but at least i'm at least you're you're listening you're a receptive audience it's beautiful (laughs) oh thank you my third theory is that okay so in i think it's 1660s i haven't studied this stuff in a while to be honest 
there were the Anglo-Dutch Wars in the 1660s, 1650s and 1660s. And um, at the time, a man named John Ogilvy made a book of uh, Aesop's fables that he had translated with um, prints made by a very, very famous printmaker in the 17th century named Wenceslas Holler. And in this new edition of his Aesop's fables, he included a story called Of the Frogs Fearing the Sun Would Marry. And it's this whole thing about it's this whole thing. It's like, a, you know, it's an ancient tale about frogs fearing that there would be a second sun and they would all die. Um, the sun being S-U-N, like the literal thing in the sky. Mm. Um, but because it was the time of the Anglo-Dutch Wars, the image that was included in this book of Aesop's fables um, painted the Dutch as frogs. So there's this like actually quite cool print of all of these. They look like people standing outside of like the Amsterdam town hall. Um and then you look closely and they're all frogs. Uh, they Every single one of them is a frog. They're wearing ruffs. They're wearing coifs. They're like really like leading into the fashions, but they're all frogs. Um, and in the 17th century, before the English called the French frogs, they called the Dutch frogs. And I'm mm. wondering if this was also tied to some sort of, you know, this Anglo-Dutch war thing going on, um, turning this, you know, this kind of mucky swamp-like creature into something sweet with sweet smelling herbs if it's a power play against the dutch i don't know clearly i don't know um but it's so interesting and it's clear that some of them were made by professionals because they're just really really high quality but there was one that's found in a 17th century schoolgirl casket so like people were making these and like a wide selection of english people were making them and i want to know more so that episode is basically a longer version of these insane theories that i have shared with you <laughs> Those are my Listen, those theories are sound because thanks when I think about the sort of theories I have one of my theories is or one of so jelly has an anti-caking agent mm. and cake has an anti-gelling agent and that means that there's a spectrum that's got jelly and cake at either end of it and then trifle exists <gasps> in the middle of it see so th those are the <laughs> kind of things that I theorize about which are much more useless oh I'm loving theories. it though because that's the most like British thing that anybody's ever said the the jelly to cake <laughs> spectrum with trifle in the middle is a deeply British thing. Congratulations. Yeah. That's good, though, because yours are just based on vibes. Mine are based on strange little glimpses of historical fact and then me kind of going, <laughs> going ham. I'm going to transition now to the questions that hopefully I sent you in advance that are fairly standard questions. So do you have a favorite book? Do I have a favorite book? Okay, yes. Wow, I don't think I ever saw any questions in advance, but that might be because I wasn't looking closely enough. I'm sorry. But yes. So no. my favorite, okay. Do you want a favorite embroidery-based book or favorite just book book? No, any book. Okay. Mm, okay, I'm going to give a rogue one. I won't lie. After my thesis, in the midst of my thesis and after my thesis, I am finding reading very hard because I've had to do so much reading through force for the last few years. Um, so I'm going to pick an old favorite and it is, uh, Edith Wharton, the age of innocence. And I first read it when I was a teen. It actually ties back to this whole conversation because I was obsessed with the book, but only after seeing the film, the film was on for some reason, American cable once as I was flipping through the channels on a rainy day. And it was like Michelle Pfeiffer and Daniel Day Lewis. It's, you know, this Martin Scorsese film. And I was watching it and I was like, I didn't know what was going on, but I was like, oh my God, their clothing is amazing. Oh my God, their clothing is amazing. Um, and then I read the book and I was like, oh, whoa, 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 the past. And it had never hit me. The Age of Innocence is 
I think a brilliant book, especially as somebody who's interested in kind of society and how people deal with the social mores of the world in which they live. Um, but also that is a favorite book because it has a really deep and, and wholesome place in my heart for being kind of the beginning of me leaning into historical literature and period dramas and that kind of led to the fashion thing and led to the textile thing. So shout out to Edith Wharton. Favorite book, The Age of Innocence. Uh, favorite album slash band? <gasps> Ever changing. Changing always. Um, mm-hmm. Ooh, ooh, okay. Um, oh my God. I think, you know, it's gonna have to be Fleetwood Mac. Oh. Just kind of hitting... Hitting, well, hitting the oldies because even though my favorite like contemporary album always changes, um, mm-hmm. Fleetwood Mac is a, is a stalwart fave. They're always here for me. Um, and also as a child, yeah. I think I watched the, like one of the concert videos like every day. You know how children watch like the same thing every day? Mm-hmm. Like young children? Mm-hmm. That was me with Fleetwood Mac. Um, <laughs> I think Fleetwood Mac is, is the fave. Um, I like all of their albums. How embarrassing is it that I can't remember the album? What is the name of that album where they're like, they're standing? One is like straight and one is to the side. You know what I'm talking about? I'm looking it up. Rumors. Thank you. Rumors. Yes, that. Yeah. I think, wow, I'm a fake fan, clearly, given that no, I can't no, no, remember the No, no, no. It's all right. I've got album. you on the spot. It's fine. Um, I appreciate it. Thank you. I think, yeah, Fleetwood Mac as the kind of one that I'll always return to even though I always have a different favorite contemporary thing, Fleetwood Mac is forever. Mm. Yeah, well, I've got rumors on vinyl and I like looking at the pictures because I'm, I'm kind <sighs> of late to it. Like Tango in the Wind came out when I was a kid. My mom had it, didn't really like it. But rumors, like those guys at that point in time are so flipping cool. Like, you know, they were big. Mm. They were a bit sexy. They were a bit folky. They were at it with each other. Like they were they were doing it. They were doing it all. Yeah. Mm. And they sounded nice. Yeah. Good for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, and then favorite, wait, what's yours? Favorite album? Yeah, I've, I have too many. I'm a bit of a. There's lots of ones I like. I always talk about. I had this time in my life where one day I went to Woolworths in Bedford and I bought three albums. I bought the Prince soundtrack. I think these are all on cassette. Bought the Prince soundtrack, uh, the mm. Batman soundtrack. Sorry, by Prince. I bought Nene Cherry Raw Like Sushi and I bought Guns N' Roses Appetite for Destruction. And I listened to the first two for about six months and then one day I put Guns N' Roses on and that was that for like five years. So probably Guns N' Roses is one of the most impactful albums. A solid choice. A very solid choice. Shout out Woolworths. Rest in peace. (laughs) Definitely. Right. Uh, Favorite film? Okay. Oh, favorite. Oh, good Lord. Um... Uh, all of the favorite films I've had in the past have been like pretty embarrassing and also kind of indicative of certain times in my life. Um, ooh, I feel, I would say my list is um actually very, very embarrassing, but true to me. So I will tell you, I'm going to give you three if that's okay. I can handle your truth. Um, yeah. But in a real quick way. Okay. The Parent Trap, because um, that's like what I grew up on and I did watch it every day and I remain obsessed with it. I saw it again recently like two weeks ago and i was watching it with a friend who's a fashion historian and we noticed for the first time i've literally never noticed it and i've seen this film like probably 40 times um there is a sampler in the film (laughs) when they're in the isolation cabin there is a sampler so i was like wow i love it even more now Mm -hmm. um okay 
So that's number one. That's like childhood favorite, forever favorite. Um, Titanic, unfortunately, it's a bad film. Um, but I like was and still am like a real Titanic person. I find it really interesting. Like the way the disaster went down, fascinating. Um, and even though the depiction of like the actual disaster is not very accurate, I find it helpful to have like a, a kind of depiction of the kind of unfurling of that event on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Oh, it's very embarrassing. All of these are pretty embarrassing. It's okay. Um, it's okay. These are all just like comfort faves. We're nothing if not true to my brand, to be honest. All of these are comfort faves. Speaking of comfort faves, the third is Dirty Dancing. Uh, I don't know, man. What can I say? I feel like some people who are listening to this will probably be like, yes. And many, many people who are listening to this are going to say no. Um, but those are the ones... Like similarly, like to albums and bands and stuff, my favorites, contempt, like my current favorites, change a lot. Mm-hmm. But those are the ones that will always have a special place in my heart. Patrick Swayze, yeah, indeed, Love yeah, him. yeah. No, Pat, I think it's, I think that's a solid. I think they're all solid choices. They're not bad films. I mean, you might feel a bit cringe about them. One of my favorite all-time films of all time. One of the films I've probably watched more than any other film is just Police Academy. So we're not exactly in highbrow. Territory I've never here, seen it. Have you not? Okay, that's, oh, the first that's good. one's so no. good. The rest of them, pants, because it just gets a bit played out. But the first one is so good. So funny. Okay, I will be consuming. I will be watching. It's one of those There's things bit- that's like, I feel like for the most part, people's favorite films are going to be comfort watches because those are the films you can watch over and over again. Like how mm. many times, I loved Moonlight, but how many times can I watch Moonlight? Not th- not as many as Titanic, which I have seen an embarrassing number of times. <laughs> It's true. Uh, it's me, you know? No, that's cool. So then I only have one more question, which is, and this is, again, mm. I sh- should have let you have this in advance. What's an interesting fact about Isabella Rosner that nobody really knows? <gasps> okay. Okay. This is good because I do have a lot of, like, you can tell I'm a, I'm a big weirdo. So I do have, <laughs> I have facts at the ready. Um, The thing that only, like, people in real life know about me and only some people is that um i can touch my tongue to my elbow it's good enough i don't feel like i need to say a single word after that <laughs> she's just gonna let it you're just gonna let it lie let it rest just end the it's show a, there end that's right <laughs> drop. No, thank she's you. Just like, <laughs> i can touch my tongue to my elbow that's it done isabella thanks for having a needle exchange with me jamie it has been a joy thank you so much i cannot wait to have you on so what oh yes thanks for joining me on another needle exchange i hope you enjoyed the show i'd love to hear from you so feel free to email hello at needle.exchange that's n-w-e-d-l dot exchange with any thoughts comments or feedback and if you want to keep up with all the news sign up to the needle exchange mailing list at bit.ly bit.ly forward slash needle exchange see you next time